A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss updates from across the battlefront, look at the money Russia has made from selling fossil fuels to the world since the invasion began, and analyse the history behind Vladimir Putin's obsession with Peter the Great. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 10th of June, day 110. And today I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, energy correspondent Rachel Millard, and senior reporter and history correspondent, Daniel Kapuro. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Still heavy, heavy fighting going on in that Donetsk uh, pocket, in, sorry, in the Donbass pocket around the city of Severodonetsk. President Zelensky says they're fighting for every metre in the city. The fight there is mainly characterised by artillery duels, Ukraine does seem to be running low on Soviet-era ammunition, sort of 122, 152 millimetre ammunition. Uh, does, uh, we think it started with around 300,000 rounds of that, of that nature, that calibre, and it's largely worn through its stocks, saying it's firing now about five or 6,000 rounds a day, which is nothing compared to the at least 10 times that coming back the other way from, from Russia. We think there's quite a lot of, of NATO standard 155 millimetre ammunition, but they just haven't got the tubes to fire it. And hence, they've, uh, they're asking, con- continue to ask for more um, and heavy weapons. Um, and just on that, so President Zelensky's advisor, Mikhailo Podolyak, said uh, in a tweet just this morning, he put out a, a, a list of what Ukraine needs. He says they need a thousand howitzers of 155 mil, 300 multiple launch rocket systems, 500 tanks, 2,000 armored vehicles, and a thousand drones. And he's saying that the, the, the contact group of European defense ministers that are meeting later this week uh, in Brussels, he says of that, he said, we are waiting for a decision. So hoping and expecting something will come out of that meeting later this week. Just on that shopping list, and the, the IISS academic, the International Institute for Strategic Studies, a uh, think tank we should all be all be following, the academic there, Franz Stefan Gaddy, said that the 
the numbers that they've asked for there equates to about 11 or 12 mechanized slash tank brigades and independent artillery and rocket brigades as well. And he made the point that Ukraine, we think, started this war on February the 24th with about 13 mechanized, a mix of mechanized and tank brigades. And um, it's in effect what what Ukraine's asking for now is to regenerate their entire ground manoeuvre force of about 54 battalions, 10, 10 tank battalions, 44 mechanised infantry battalions. So, so as we've discussed many times on this on this pod, for for Ukraine to prevail here, there is there is it does largely come down to numbers. They are having to regenerate whilst in contact with Russia, regenerate almost their entire ground force, which is a a huge huge undertaking at the best of times, getting the the equipment in, changing a lot of the systems and processes from old Soviet-era calibers to NATO standard calibers, training on those natures of equipment, and actually then getting into the fight. So a huge undertaking required there from Ukraine. But first time in a long time, actually, we've seen from from Ukrainian government an actual an actual list of, of what they say they need to to end the war. So something we can plan on, but uh, but, but still pretty grim, <clears throat> grim reading there. Thanks, I'll Tom. Just take well, a just pause. on that, we know that there's been lots of criticism over the over arms deliveries from European countries uh, to Ukraine for, the, for their slowness. Um, but we've heard that uh, Germany's Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, well, might be in Kiev uh, later this month, uh, as will Mario Draghi from Italy and Emmanuel Macron. Um, can you tell us about this? What, what do you make of that? Yeah, we started getting reports of this last week. They were saying that the the three of them, the three leaders from France, Germany, and Italy, will be uh, will be visiting Kiev before the G seven meeting at the end of this month. Uh, that came out just before the weekend. Then this morning, Build in Germany put a date on it and said that they're actually going this Thursday. Um, German officials have not confirmed that, uh, but that would be very interesting. So. So these three, the three leaders of France, France, Germany, and, and Italy, all in their own way, have been criticised for being rather slow uh, and lacklustre in their support, either politically or um, for mili- with military equipment, and also somewhat unwise in their continued interaction with Putin. Uh, keeping the it's good to keep the channels of communication open, but but w- when do you? start becoming part of the problem, not the solution, I think is, is the question many people have asked. Now, I think this is going to be really interesting. If the, if the three if those three leaders do go to Kiev this week or, or whenever they go, are they going to take a message of out-and-out support and almost a kind of, sorry that we've, we've been... We've played the narrative wrong. We've played the information battle wrong, but we're we're with you 100%. Or will they go with some kind of idea of the best way out of this for Ukraine, i.e. negotiate probably land land for peace type type arrangement? I don't think there's going to be any appetite at all for that in Kiev at the moment. And if that is the message that they take, I think that would be quite alarming and dangerous for the for the Western alliance, not not fundamental, but uh, certainly not a good sign. Uh, Britain, America, the sort of northern European countries, Scandinavia, Baltic nations, Nordic nations have all been very, very resolute in their support for for Ukraine. Very clear-eyed about the threat, and um, and not willing to countenance any kind of the, this sort of talk at all. And I just wonder if there if there might be a little a little split there, a little diplomatic split. We've asked again many times on this pod: when does healthy uh, healthy difference of opinion become splits in the alliance, and I think this this would certainly not not be a good sign if this were to be the message Macron, Schulz, and Draghi take to uh, take to Kiev. 
I'm actually off with the with the defence secretary tomorrow. I can't say where, just ahead of the meeting um, for security reasons, but 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 away for for two days with the defence minister. He's meeting the other defence ministers of of the Jeff, the Joint Expeditionary Force, the Ten Nation, so sort of Iceland, Britain, uh, Netherlands, Denmark, and then the the three, uh, Norway, Norway, Finland, Sweden, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. So the Northern Northern European beer drinking club that turn up on day one, basically. Uh, so defence secretary is off to see his opposite numbers in the in the Jeff, and I think that well, this is going to be on the agenda. If it's not in the press conference, it will be in the Q and A straight away because uh, I will be there and, and and there'll be other colleagues from across Europe, and we'll we'll ask them these questions, and we'll be asking what are the security guarantees that can be offered to Ukraine? What what do they make of this of this potential diplomatic uh, request from? Uh, from the three leaders, so so it, there's going to be quite a, a lot of diplomacy this week at a very senior level, and uh, and we'll be we'll be reporting reporting back as soon Thanks, as we Tom. can. Um, Rachel Miller, turning to you, um, there's a new report out from the Centre for Research on Energy and Clean Air, which claims that Russia has made 93 billion euros uh, from its fossil fuel exports between February the 24th and June the 3rd. Can you talk us through the report? What did it find? Hi, thanks. Yeah, sure. So, um, so R- Russia has has been a, you know, one of the world's largest uh, producers of, of of oil and gas uh, and exporters of oil and gas um, o- over the long term, and and that certainly does does not seem to have uh, changed uh, in the last few months, even as um, countries and and companies try to sort of extricate themselves from Russia and, and stop doing business with it. Um, so yeah, this group, the, the Centre for Research on Energy and Clean Air, which is a, a sort of a research group based in Helsinki, have dug into the figures, um, and they found that just in the first hundred days of the war, so from February twenty fourth to June third, Russia earned ninety three billion from fossil fuel exports. Um, interestingly, uh, that came even though their volumes have have fallen slightly because countries and firms have been trying to use alternative supplies, but um, the price of oil and gas has increased partly as a result of the, well, mostly, in fact, as a result of the sort of disruption in the market caused by Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. So that's helped offset the, the slight fall in exports, uh, meaning that Russia has still managed to, to, to make a huge amount of money from it. The, the centre estimates about... Um, uh, Centre estimates that the summits earned from fuel, fossil fuel exports actually exceeds the amount that its invasion is costing. So it estimates the invasion is costing about 140 million euros per day. So they're certainly, um, you know, earning an absolutely extraordinary amount from from fossil fuels, even as that's going on. And um, which which countries does the report mention are buying the most? So interestingly. Um, uh, China has emerged as the largest um, importer of fossil fuels from Russia, um, having overtaken uh, Germany, which is a sort of interesting sign of how trade flows are starting to kind of re- reshape. So as, as many sort of Western countries are trying to cut their reliance on uh, fossil fuels, others are picking up the slack. Um, so uh, China's increased, um, India has also increased their imports, India's bought about 18% of Russian exports over the period. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have also increased imports. And uh, interestingly, France, sort of fairly uniquely in the EU, I think, has has also increased imports slightly. I think that might be partly to do with um, a slight fall in, in nuclear power capacity in France in the, in the past few months, which possibly makes them a bit more reliant on, on gas. 
Thanks, Rachel. I think one more figure potentially to mention is that is that Germany paid Russia more than twelve billion pounds um, in the first hundred days of war as well. Um, is there is there is there much more to say to this? Do, do you have th- thoughts about? Yeah, as, as, as you mentioned, the interesting sort of shift from from um, uh, Europe to Western nations to to, to Asia, so China and India. Um, do, I mean, what do you think? Do you think that this shows that it is possible to ride out Western sanctions? Uh, I think it may well be the case that um, I mean, I mean, at at the moment, um, Western sanctions on on Russian oil and gas are not particularly material in, in the grand scheme of things. That the UK's ban on on Russian oil oil is is not set to come in until um, December, and it's not yet banned Russian gas at all. And the EU similarly um, is has only just in the past few weeks agreed a ban on Russian oil, and that's very um, that's fairly limited. So it's sort of seaborne oil imports again, not until December. Um, so at the moment, uh, you know, there simply aren't, aren't enough sanctions in place that Russia even needs to ride out. Um, in the very long term, beyond that, um, I expect they will they will find that there's a significant, uh, you know, just rearrangement of, of, of markets in which yes, countries like China and India will probably become much more significant importers of Russian projects products, and Russia may well find that it remains perfectly able to carry on as, as a major oil and gas exporter. Well, thank you very much, um, Rachel. Dom and Daniel, uh, listening to that, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, if I could just ask, uh, how quickly does does money um, get through to if 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 a if a company if a country is paying for for its um, energy in this way, and we say, oh my God, you know, there's, there's billions of dollars flowing into into the Russian uh, Russian state there. I mean, how how quickly can this actually be turned around? Do they do they have access to it? immediately and can they can they start to start to sort of lay contracts for weapons and arms and, and other stuff and start to, to pay other pay other debts with it does it work like that or is it not not quite as as quickly as sort of the checks um, i think it would depend very much some um, sort of contract by contract so depend on on the on the various terms that all of the um sort of buyers of, of russian oil and gas which mostly would be sort of major oil and gas companies um have with with uh with gazprom or, or with other exporters from russia um uh, there has been a sort of you know over the past few months been a long um sort of dispute between russia and, and european buyers of gas in which uh russia has asked them to pay uh, via gazprom bank um which will convert their purchases in, into rubles and, and that's seen a bit of a sort of standoff in which um in which some uh companies have re- refused to comply and had their sales cut off um uh but uh in 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 the in the in the main, uh, the money is still flowing. I think it flows fairly fairly rapidly. Um, the UK has actually recently extended its own sort of waiver on on sanctions against Gazprom Bank, meaning that uh, traders in the UK can continue to send money to Gazprom Bank to make sure that gas flows can continue, as a kind of indication of how important all these gas and oil flows are to the to EU and and as a sort of knock on effect to the UK. So. Um, yeah, I, think, I don't know the ins and outs of all the agreements, but I think it's fairly it's it's fairly swift. Well, thank you very much, Rachel. Um, moving on, uh, Daniel Kupera, can I turn to you? We've heard lots of news out of the occupied regions of southeastern Ukraine. Uh, Russian news broadcasts have have been on the airwaves that there are plans to introduce a Russian school curriculum. Uh, if people want them, they've been issued with Russian passports as, as well. Can you talk a little little bit about this, this Russification? Where does it come from? What are the historical precedents for this? Yeah, of course. So um, Russification has a, has a long history 
uh, in the Russian Empire and, and the Soviet Union. Um, what went on in the 19th century when it first really got going was not necessarily that different to what was happening elsewhere in Europe. You had these kind of two competing forces, um, the kind of nation building that was going on, the centralization, imperialism, and then you had uh, the kind of you know, 1848 and the Spring of Nations and, and this growing sort of national identity among smaller groups, Hungarians, Czechs, Slovaks. Um, a lot of that depended on language. You know, that's when you have the kind of the codification of languages, the first kind of dictionaries in a lot of uh, Eastern European Slavic languages. But of course, if you're an emperor or a Tsar sitting on your throne, um, it was seen at the time that the, the easiest, the best way to control a nation and a country was to um, eradicate differences, get everyone speaking the same language, get rid of these kind of regional identities. And it wasn't just, you know, sort of despots. It was going on in places like France. Uh, it was going on in, in the UK to an extent with the kind of efforts to, to get rid of Welsh, efforts to get rid of regional languages in France. So so originally it was a sort of, you know, was in part of a wider trend. Um, but then when you move towards the sort of the 20th century in the Soviet Union, you see this kind of much more sinister totalitarian version of it um, so very early on in the Soviet Union in the 1920s, there was a kind of a promotion of, of uh, regional identities, regional languages. Ukrainian was taught in schools. Uh, there are a few reasons for this, partly the kind of the difficult position the Soviet Union was in, uh, the Russian Civil War, um, the kind of the precarious nature of, of Lenin and then Stalin's control. Um, it was useful to them to, to have uh, regional um regional communist parties, regional Bolshevik groups on site. You know, there was a Ukrainian Bolshevik party. Uh, there was a, a, a Latvian Bolshevik party, for example. But um, once Stalin was kind of firmly in power, um, he really kind of let rip. Um, and what you saw was kind of mass deportations, particularly in places like the Baltics, Latvia, uh, Lithuania, Estonia. You can go to, you know, if you go to the Museum of the Occupations in, in Riga in Latvia, you can see this kind of um, brutal story of... of uh, deportations first um, to the Russian Far East, uh, then obviously the Nazi occupation, and the Soviets came back again and again. You see these waves of deportations. Uh, what you also see is is mass migration, both forced and uh, economic, of Russians to um, the Baltics, to uh, Poland, to Ukraine, Belarus. Um, and this then obviously changes the balance. So even today, when Putin's kind of talking about Russian minorities outside of Russia that, you know, were abandoned by the Soviet Union, when he's talking about Russians in, in Latvia and Estonia, you know, at one point, Latvia was a majority uh, Russian country, uh, ethnically and, and linguistically. Uh, that's because of these policies of Stalin, because of the policies of the Soviet Union. So, so what's going on today partly kind of echoes that, this kind of dark, sinister, totalitarian um, thing. You know, you see it with the... Um, the movement of refugees in uh, Russian-held territory to Russia, um, where you know their documents are taken away, and there's tens of thousands of Ukrainians, perhaps hundreds of thousands, and we don't know what's happened to them. Um, there's there's echoes of that, and then it also plays into Putin's kind of justification for this war. You know um, that there's Russians in the Donbass who are under threat, who are being um, who have had you know supposedly this genocide committed against them by by Ukrainian Nazis. Well, it helps if you have. A, a population there that identifies as Russian, that has Russian passports, uh, that sings Russian patriotic songs, all this kind of stuff. So, so it's part of partly it's kind of a resumption of this historical process that you see with with previous Soviet and Russian dictators, and then partly it's this new, um, more kind of right wing fascist uh, tendency that you see in Putin of 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 making claims to to ethnic minorities in other countries. Thanks, Dan. Um- Talking about Putin, that brings us on to, I think, our, our next discussion point. Um, 
Dom Nichols wrote a very good piece and spoke about this on the podcast last week um, off Putin's remarks about Peter the Great and uh, his his sort of wish to, 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 to echo uh, Peter's achievements and accomplishments at the head of the Russian Empire. Um, I know you had some thoughts on this. Um, what do you make of that? Mm. Well, I, I uh, yes, I, I watched that, um, saw those comments with a wry smile. Um, Peter the Great is, is this fascinating figure in uh, Russian history, and it makes absolute sense that that the um, that the current regime would try and and appropriate him. Uh, you know, Putin was speaking at the launch of a, a an exhibition on the anniversary of of Peter's uh, reign, um, and he really has been kind of co opted by the regime. Um, the reason he's this key figure is because he really sort of set the foundations for modern Russia. Um, it was under him that Russia became an empire. It ceased being a, just a, a simple sardom and became an empire. Um, it finally stepped up to the level of great power and became important within Europe rather than being this peripheral peripheral power. Um, stopped being this um, this country that was associated with sort of you know being a, a Mongol vassal, all these kind of things. Um, he built the civil service. He built the standing army. He built the navy. Um, he changed the way that. Um, he changed the way that the aristocracy related to um, the Tsar. He um, made Russia a secular country in the sense that he placed the um, Tsar at the top of the church, um, displacing the patriarch. You know, this proper, proper nation building. Um, and he was also kind of this terrible autocrat who did many horrible things. But I think where it's fascinating that Putin's kind of um, chosen him as this emblematic figure is that, um, you know, there's this long-running tension throughout um, Russian history going back centuries, which is, is Russia an Asian country? Is it a European country or is it something else? Uh, is it an Asian power that should should look to the continent of Asia for its expansion, for its importance, uh, for its wealth? Or does it need to be European? Because it's always been, uh, has always been seen as being slightly backwards. It's always been slightly economically less than Europe, slightly less advanced, slightly less sophisticated. Um, and on one hand, you had people saying, no, well, we need to be distinct. We need to be ourselves. Um, you had this idea of Moscow being the third Rome, you know, that the power from Rome went to Constantinople with the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And then from Constantinople actually went to Moscow, that there's you can trace a line all the way back to the early church um, and that, you know, Russia should stand alone as a power. And then you had the more pragmatic um, Russians who said, no, we need to go to the West. And that's exactly what Peter did. Uh, he actually went on what was called the Great Embassy. He traveled around Europe for uh, many years, uh, sometimes in disguise. He worked as a shipbuilder, as a shipwright in Amsterdam and in Deptford in London, um, just down the road from where we're speaking now, where he learned um, how to make ships. You know, he was obsessed with, with navies and he thought naval power was, was the key to being a great European power. Um, he banned the boyars, the, the kind of aristocracy in, in Russia, for the men from, from having long Asiatic beards. And if they refused to cut their beards off, he made them pay a 100 ruble tax um, to keep their beards. He banned them from wearing... Asian clothes, and of course, the, the crowning glory of his his um, kind of Europeanization of Russia was Saint Petersburg, the city he named ostensibly after the saint, but really after himself, which was built in a swamp um, on the on the coast of the Baltic in newly conquered lands. Um, and this is a European city. Uh, he based it on uh, what he learned in Amsterdam about city building, and you know, it's often called the Venice of of the East or of the North, but it kind of looks more like Amsterdam in, in a sense with all the canals. Um, you know, this was this kind of crowning glory, this, this Europeanization of Russia, this, this announcement that Russia was a great power. Um, and the key moment in this, and, and you can see this in the, the, the wars that Peter fought, and this is what Putin was referring to, is that um, 
he did initially, you know, this is one of these ironies, he did initially was, was fighting over Azov, you know, he was fighting over what is now um, southeastern uh, Ukraine around sort of Mariupol and places with uh, vassals of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and it didn't go too well. He tried to get European allies, but the Europeans weren't interested because they were busy fighting each other over the Spanish uh, throne. Um, and so eventually he gave up on that. He actually had to give back Azov. He had to give back Zaporizhia, another kind of oblast that's being fought over now. And he turned his attention west um, and he took on the Swedish Empire, which at the time was a great power, a great military power, um, and fought this 21-year war that, that Putin refers to, the Great Northern War. Um, now, in Putin's speech, he's kind of, again, he's justifying his invasion of Ukraine and he's sort of saying, well, people said it was Finno-Ergic land, that it was controlled by Sweden, that it had never been uh, Russian. And in the same breath, he was talking about reconquering the lands. And, and in this, you can see, again, this kind of tension in Russian history, this paranoia of outside influence and control. Some of the land that was reconquered, uh, Ingria, which is kind of now sort of at the far end of, of the, the Gulf of Finland, um, had been Russian. Uh, it was taken from Russia during a period of civil war when, when the Swedes, who had been Russian allies, turned on them. Again, you kind of see this, this paranoia of, of Western powers meddling. Um, but the bits that are now uh, Latvia, Estonia, uh, were indeed... Uh, Swedish controlled. Before that, they were not uh, Russian. They were controlled by the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Uh, yes, they they might have been slightly Slavic, but but they were never they were never Russian. Um, so you can see this kind of strange pan-Slavicism in in uh, in Putin's kind of thinking that well, they were Slavs and therefore they can be Russian, which again you know is kind of long tradition in Russian history. But you can see its justification for the war. Um, but it is this, this irony, you know, that Putin is basically driving uh, Russia into being a pariah state. Um, he's sending the state backwards. He's cutting it off from, from the West. He's making it autarkic and yet at the same time uh, justifying it by comparing himself to Peter the Great, who actually was this man who was obsessed with Europe, who was obsessed with making Russia European. That's absolutely fascinating, Dan. Thanks for that. And Dom, do you have any questions? Yeah, yeah, please. And uh, hi, Dan. Um there was a great article over the weekend by uh, Lawrence Friedman, professor of war studies at King's College London. And he, he wrote about uh, the eight, eight lessons any any prospective or any leader should uh, contemplate before invading another country. Putin would have done well to to read them. I, I tweeted about it. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll be able to see the link to Lawrence Friedman. Really good article. But he made the point that there's this there's this fundamental tension in Putin's world vision in that he wants to have all Russian speakers and um, native, native Russians, Slavic people inside the border. He wants to get his arms around and get the, get the border around all, all those people. But that means that there are going to be non-native Russians and non-Russian speakers and, you know, quote unquote, enemies just the other side of your border. And he's never been able to resolve this because if he if he pulls the border in a bit and has a buffer, a buffer state of uh, of. Um, if not client, then then friendly former, maybe former Soviet or um, Slavic nations. But he wants a lot, and and Lawrence Friedman was pointing out this 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 tension that he's never really been able to resolve, and that as we said with his speech last week, we think the mask if if it didn't slip, he was just happy to cast it aside and say actually this this war is all about territory and it's not about denazification and anything else. I just wonder if you if you agreed with that and if you had any any views on this on this idea of attention about about where how far away you put the border um if you are Vladimir Absolutely. Putin. I think I think he's spot on there and it's one of these difficult questions when you look at Russian history it doesn't fit easily into the models you would use to discuss a France or a Germany because it does have all these minorities it is a massive asian power you know you can look at Chechnya and Dagestan, for example. Um, I think Russia has the largest um, Muslim population of any 
European, using that sense loosely, country. Um, you know, lots of the far right in the UK and, and in the continent, um, on the continent, look to Russia and say, oh, it's pure and it's preserving traditional uh, Christian values. But actually, it's incredibly multicultural. And that's that has always been this kind of this difficult thing of how do you how do you hold together this this um, Russian state with all these centrifugal forces from all these different ethnicities that want to spin off and 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 become independent and and you saw that towards the end of the Soviet Union. So one of the reasons that um, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, or one of the reasons it's believed they invaded Afghanistan, was because they were worried about the influence um, of a, an Islamic state right on the borders of of the Central Asian. Uh, Soviets, the Stans, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and so on. Um, and they wanted to keep a secular um, Marxist government in place because they were, you know, terrified. Brezhnev was, was absolutely terrified of some kind of Islamic rising, uh, uprising in, in Central Asia. So that's definitely, it's always been a tension that's that's run through um, through Russian history. And, and, you know, again, going back to this kind of Russification effort, it's that thing of let's absorb um, these people, but then let's make them Russian so that they, they can't... Um, you know, they don't want to rebel. They don't want to be like the Poles who are pain in the backside and, and keep having uprisings every 20 years. Um, and ultimately, you know, with Stalin, well, if we can't do that, let's just deport them to, to Siberia, to Central Asia and, and um, have population transfers. I mean, that's, you know, one of the kind of ironies of today, Crimea, the most um, the most Russian, the most pro-Russian part of Ukraine, um, even when it was even before the annexation, is, of course, like that because the Tatars, the Muslim Tatars, were deported in their hundreds of thousands by Stalin. And and by the time they were allowed to return, well, a lot of them had died um, and a lot of them didn't want to go back. Just um, talking a little bit about uh, 20th century history, um, Dom, you mentioned you've been sent an interesting question about grain and whether it's going to be as important as it was in World War II. Uh, what was the question? I know, Daniel, you had some thoughts on it. Yeah, a question from a listener. Forgive me, I'll, I'll dig out um, the, the person who sent it in. Um, but the question was, there's a lot of focus at the moment on grain exports and, and food exports out of, out of Ukraine being stymied by, by Russia. And uh, that's quite rightly drawing a whole lot of attention. And the question was, well, what happened in the Second World War? Surely, surely it, was, it was just the same, if not, if not worse then. So what was the what what was the comparable sort of experience yeah, back I think, then? I think that's a brilliant question. Um a very apt one. Um I mean to 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 be, you know, the short answer is well there were lots of famines, really. Um both during and after the war. Um but but again there's as with all of this history, there's a more sinister um element to it. So um the, the Germans before they launched Operation Barbarossa, the Nazis um drew up a plan for how um the war would go, uh, how they would fund it. And part of that was something that became known as the Hunger Plan. Um, you know, this was in sort of Goering's little green book at the Nuremberg trials. Um, the idea was that um, as they took this Slavic land, as they took this Lebensraum, they would use the resources available, um, both industrial and sort of agricultural and, and raw materials, to to fund and feed um, German territories. And, and, you know, this is one of these... Um, things that's long been studied by by historians and looked at is that actually the German home front in the Second World War, until um, the sort of the mass bombings by by the Allies, was fairly pleasant. There weren't that many shortages of things. Um, you know, there was actually sort of far more substantial rationing in, in Britain. And this was because uh, the Germans appropriated huge amounts of um, resources from from Eastern Europe, um, and particularly from Ukraine, you know, the bread breadbasket of, of Europe. I think Timothy Schneider, the historian, puts the figure... Um, for deaths in the Soviet Union, and obviously that includes Ukrainians, Belarusians, 
many others, not just Russians, at 4.2 million. Um, there are higher figures. One of the kind of questions around this is, is uh, around prisoners of war, because um, unlike, you know, the romantic image we have in the West of, you know, the Great Escape and everything else, when it came to Soviet prisoners of war, all prisoners of war on the Eastern Front, uh, the Russians would just pen them up with barbed wire and leave them to die of exposure or starvation. So, you know, do you count those people as, as famine victims? Um, so, yeah, there was huge amounts of, of death um, in the Soviet Union, specifically because Ukrainian grain was was taken and, and, and stolen and taken to Germany. Um, and more broadly, you did have uh, famines elsewhere in the world um, because of the war directly or in, or in the aftermath. Obviously, there's the, 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 the Bengal famine, which is notorious and, and, and the role, you know, highly contentious of, of what Britain's role was in that. Um, you know, there were famines in Greece, in Austria, in, in Vietnam. Um, one of the kind of other better known famines is, is the Hunger Winter in, in the Netherlands. Um, you know, this is sort of a slight tangent, but, but a fascinating point, I think, nonetheless. Um, Audrey Hepburn uh, grew up in the Netherlands and she was there during that famine um, and she was a victim of malnutrition. Um, so when she went on in the 1960s to become this icon of of beauty and attractiveness. Well, actually, uh, the vision that people were admiring was um, the long-standing effects of of uh, malnutrition and, and famine in the 1940s on her. Um, and there's lots of studies that show, you know, kind of diabetes and lots of other terrible things that, that continue to affect the offspring of, of people who, who suffered from, from famines. I've just got one more question for you from me, um, Dan. There was some interesting news today from um, a think tank on... Well, today, on Monday, um, that said that the global nuclear arsenal is expected to grow in the next few years. And this is the first time it's growing since the Cold War. Um, and the risk of such weapons being used is the greatest in decades. Um, this feels like a, a historical moment we should note. Um, what would you make of it? It's a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 the Soviets and the Americans, um, alongside the Europeans, built up you know these vast arsenals, more than enough to blow, blow up the world many, many, many times over. Um, I think the real worry, uh, at least later on in the Cold War, was was these kind of um, tactical nuclear weapons. You know, what happens in this escalation where you use, you know, supposedly a small um, nuclear weapon? You know, you had these kind of dial-a-yield type bombs where there's, you know, effectively just a dial on the side and you decide how strong you want it to be, um, whether you want to wipe out a whole city or, or just a barracks, really. Um, or, you know, take out a, take out a strategic river crossing. Um but that was always the fear that these would proliferate and you'd have these kind of intermediate range uh, weapons, which also tend to have, obviously, by their nature, very short warning periods um, because they're not going way up into space and coming coming back down. Um, I think the question as well with, with uh, sort of nuclear weapons is it stretches beyond um, Russia. And this was really something that, that Trump, um, for all his flaws, was engaging with when he was in power is that... Uh, most of the treaties that were signed during the Cold War, all of the treaties that were signed during the Cold War, were based on American and Soviet, later Russian, arms controls, uh, and they didn't include the Chinese. And of course, the, the you know the rising nuclear power, the, the nuclear power that's really kind of churning out warheads at, at a crazy rate now, is China. Um, and so far, they've got no incentive uh, um, to come to the table and to negotiate. And so, even if Moscow can be made to um, you know, rein in its its nuclear ambitions, the ones that it has, ones that it can afford. Um, the elephant in the room is is what's going on with Chinese nuclear weapons. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Um, Tom, do you have any thoughts on that, or any more final questions for for Dan? I'll just make the point actually that over the, the weekend, just gone the Shangri La dialogue, a big security conference happened in in Singapore, and the 
the Chinese Defence Minister, General Wei Fengu, spoke and took uh, took Q and A. Actually, did take a few questions and was um, he was asked some pretty pretty pointed questions about about human rights and all the rest of it. I think he dealt with it dealt with it quite well in a sort of shrugging off and ignoring it kind of way. But he was asked about his nu- the nuclear weapons and the the supposed new nuclear silos being built out in the western deserts in China. And, and he and he refused to go into any numbers or any great detail, but he he just reiterated their no first use policy, and uh, and said that they only only be used defensively, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Later on, of course, said that um, when asked about Taiwan, said that that all all things would be on the on the table. Any means uh, of reunif- reunifying, or I didn't use the word reunifying. He said it's it's uh, China's Taiwan, uh, and so so was not directly threatening. Any kind of use of nuclear weapons there. He was very, very clear about what uh, China feels about about Taiwan. But it was it was very interesting actually. If there's if you if you have time, it'd be worth worth checking out some of the um, reports from the Shangri La dialogue. Um, just to just to, just as a quick segue, um, General Wei did say that China. This is a quote: China's development is a historical trend, and it's neither possible nor sensible to try to stop it. And uh, then followed that up with, we will resolutely crush any attempt to pursue Taiwan independence. The pursuit of Taiwan independence is a dead end. Stop the delusion. So, you know, some fairly, uh, fairly powerful stuff there. I, I, I mentioned that only because I thought it was quite notable that he that he made some points. I'm not, Dan, I'm not asking you to come back and comment on any of those, but please feel free if you if you wish to do so. But it was a fairly bullish performance from uh, from General Wei pushing back particularly against the United States in very very pointed terms but um uh, no real shift in in positions and um and not not too much given away on their nuclear policy but but interesting well, I think nonetheless that's probably all we've got time for today thank you very much Tom and thank you Dan can i just have your final thoughts what should our listeners be thinking of um looking to the coming week uh, and the days ahead so for me as i said earlier on i think this week's going to be big diplomacy uh i said i'm off with the defense secretary tomorrow to the jeff meeting then he's got nato ministerial at which that question from mikhailo podliak president Zelensky's advisor about weapon supplies will be put and uh and then we think later this week you've got uh, mr macron mr. schultz mr draghi uh going to Kiev for talks there so so i think this will be quite quite telling on the diplomatic Thanks, front and this week dan would you like the final words I think I'd echo what, what Dom said there. I think that EU visit is, is really quite important. You know, Schultz said he was getting a lot of uh, a stick for not having visited yet. And he said, well, I won't just visit for the sake of it, for a, for a photo op, um, for a press release. I'll visit when there's something important to be done and something important to be said, uh, which obviously piles a lot of pressure onto, onto this visit this week. But I think that, yeah, that, that really will be the kind of the, the, the key moment this week is, is will um, France and Germany kind of step it up and step up their support and start taking a harder line. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Sophie Coe.